for when we you know, started the, the Veritas conference uh, six, seven years ago, the only thought was having an annual apologetic conference. But out of that, a number of initiatives have come, uh, including Veritas Publishing, Veritas Forlag, uh, which is now publishing maybe three, three titles or four titles a year on, within the Lunde Publishing House, which is leading evangelical publisher in Norway. So for example, your new book uh, here, there is the copy again, here it is. Uh, and uh, uh, that's one example of an initiative coming out of, of the Veritas conference. Another initiative is a number of Veritas events. So I think maybe all of us were, pre not almost all of us were present this morning, um, uh, where uh, that was a kind of a public event. Uh, and we want to have those kind of events. And I think yesterday you had an event at the University of Oslo. What was, what was the title of your presentation then? Is Jesus History. Is Jesus History, which I think is the title of the new book, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, there is a new series called the Oxford Apologetics Series. So it's really initiated from the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics together with the Good Book Company. And uh, there are so far four new books. One is by John Lennox on science. One is by you on Jesus History. And then it's... Uh, 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 Amy on suffering? Is no, it? not yet. It's Sharon, Dirks. Sharon Dirks mm -hmm. on, on Am I Just My Brain? Mm. And then Sam Albury. Uh, why does God care who, whom I'm sleeping with? So that's <laughs> kind of, you know, provoking titles mm. in a mm. way and, and generating ideas, inviting skeptic explorers, doubters, all of us to explore that. So uh, last year we initiated the research symposium which is meant to address issues in the whole area uh, of apologetics widely understood uh, as well as mission um, and uh, uh, this year we are combining some events uh, uh, related to this some last evening and now this afternoon and this year it's, a, it's linked to what I handed out to you uh, the Lausanne Europe 2020 conversation and gathering so uh, that is a major Lausanne event next year, happening in October. But equally important to the event as such is the wider conversation. So the point is to initiate a broader conversation. So as part of that broader conversation, there will be a book published in uh, maybe August, September next year, uh, a collection of articles. And we're actually launching that book project later this afternoon and part of the next session of you know you are somewhere else in, I think, being interviewed by Tori Alma there uh, but that will be a session where uh, uh, we will talk about where what are the key issues in Europe so this is one of a number of listening posts as it were in the beginning of this process so actually what is being said today may significantly influence the shape of that book. So even though we are not masses of people gathered, what we are doing today is actually you know, contributing to that. And we are really grateful for, for uh, John for, for being able to be with us and share something about the reflections here about the public square. And uh, uh, our time is quite flexible, but we've also uh, invited Bjornare here. Welcome, Bjornare. Uh, to, to give some thoughts uh, immediately just to, to respond to that briefly. 
uh, and then we could have an open conversation about that. That's the idea. So the floor is yours, as, it, as they say, in UK. Well, thank you very much. Um, so my goal is to share with you some uh, reflections on my time in the public square. Uh, trying to make Christ public has been my single passion. Firstly, as a singer in a uh, half-successful rock band in Australia, uh, yeah, at least uh, successful enough to be full-time for six years, and um, my chief motivation as a singer, actually, was to be able to share Christ in between songs, uh, in pubs and clubs and schools and prisons and universities and so on. Um, that flowed into a writing career uh, simply because it seemed to me there were very few resources in Australia uh, helping young people think about the Christian faith in a way that made sense. So I started writing books. I uh, never really thought of myself as a writer, but I wanted to make Christ public and writing seemed like a good way to do it. I had no idea that it would end up uh, being a major part of my life. We disbanded the rock and roll band and went and did a degree in theology and that led on to my PhD in ancient history. Uh, and again, I don't think of myself principally as an academic. I wouldn't accept a full-time academic job if you paid me a million dollars. I just want to make Christ public. And the academic work has been a wonderful way to ground me in better thought, but also to engage uh, the, the general public. Somewhere in there, I accidentally became an Anglican minister as well. And uh, I, I was not sort of the normal pick for an Anglican minister, but I believed that the local church was the best, uh, let's say, apologetic that there is. Uh, the, the best piece of public Christianity is a local church functioning the way a church really should function. And perhaps as a culmination of all of that, uh, I founded, uh, 12 uh, years ago, the Centre for Public Christianity. And you can just see in the title, that's just my passion of the last 25 years uh, in an actual organisation of scholar communicators who are trying to communicate Christ to what many describe as post-Christian Australia. Um, the story of CPX is somewhat miraculous. I sometimes have people say to me or ask me, you know, how did you start the Centre for Public Christianity? Because we would like to do it too. And, and, I, and I don't really have a way of answering that other than <laughs> I had this idea that one day it would be great if there were a collective of scholar communicators that could be engaging the public media, writing opinion pieces, appearing on TV and on radio, commending a generous, thoughtful, orthodox Christianity. Um, the way it came about was simply that I was about to take a job in Oxford some years ago and uh, a, a friend and benefactor, a businessman in Australia, uh, convinced me that Oxford doesn't need uh, any more boffins. Um, <laughs> uh, what would it take to keep you in Australia? Yeah. And I said, well, I've always wanted to start a centre for public Christianity. And he said, describe it. And I described it. I said, a collective of scholar communicators who could write for the media or hear the media, give public conferences, produce documentaries and books. And he said, give me 24 hours. <laughs> he called back within about 12 hours, having found $2 million 
to launch uh, the Center for Public Christianity. So uh, you can see why um, I don't really know how on earth you would start a Center for Public Christianity unless you have a benefactor uh, willing to give um, that much money. Um, we started our first uh, two, or two or three years were uh, well covered um, and uh, it, we, we turned up at our offices day one, unsure what would happen, unsure if we wrote an opinion piece for the local very secular newspapers in Australia, unsure if they would even take such a thing, uh, but somehow they thought we were grown-ups and uh, they accepted our first opinion piece and then our second and our third and got to the point where we were being published every fortnight. We'd be publishing something in one of the mainstream uh, broadsheets uh, in Australia and of course when you publish articles in the mainstream press that leads to radio and that leads to TV and the whole thing blossomed and now uh, there's uh, 10 staff at the Centre for Public Christianity in some ways I'm now just honorary with them. I started it uh, but now I sort of have a, uh, a more roving uh, ministry uh, preaching and evangelizing but my point is everything that I've done is trying to make Christ public. It's very simple it isn't that I'm still trying to find what makes me happy. Uh, I, it, what makes me happy is finding ways to make Christ public. So I will learn dancing if I thought that that would achieve its end. Uh, but knowing my skills, I know it, it wouldn't. <laughs> my overwhelming sense, and really the thing that I'm going to be saying in my reflections, uh, is that we are at a perfect midpoint between enduring plausibility of Christianity in culture and increased contestability, and that those two things operate together to create marvellous opportunities. If Christianity were any more plausible in post-Christian Europe or post-Christian Australia, any more plausible, then it would probably be passé. It would probably be too boring to be invited onto mainstream uh, platforms. But if it were any more contested and marginal, people wouldn't think to bother inviting you on. But it's the fact that there's this combination of enduring plausibility with contestability, I think, has created the opportunities that the Centre for Public Christianity has enjoyed. I have nine reflections for you from my time in this uh, public ministry. And um, of course they come from the Australian experience. I know nothing about Norway. I know very little about Europe. I come from a convict culture. Uh, and so everything's going to be different but there may be some uh, points that I raise that will resonate with you and the first reflection is just the obvious increasing irreligion or decreasing religion whichever way you want to think of that the, uh, the opposition and bad news around Christianity is everywhere to be seen uh, we've uh, seen a dramatic drop in those claiming any kind of association with the church uh, from 61% uh, in 2011 to 52% in 2016. It's hard to know what this means and hard, very hard to know how this might compare to Norway because I, I really tried my best to find out the data about Norway and it's, and it's so complicated by the fact that there's a state church and what it means to say someone is a member of the church. So I'm not even going <laughs> to predict how that relates uh, to, uh, to your context. But, but there is a dramatic drop between 2011 and 2016. Uh, those ticking no religion have climbed from 22% in 2011 to 30% in 2016. Alongside that, we've seen a very interesting drop in people even going to the church for civic functions. So only 28% of weddings now are conducted in church. I'd love to know how that compares to Norway. Only 40% of funerals 
the most serious business of life. Only 40% do people think it's worth going down to the local church. An Ipsos poll of 20 countries recently found that Australia has the second lowest view of religion in the world. Uh, so uh, there's Belgium, uh, Germany uh, were, were equal first, and Spain and Australia equal second worst. I don't know how to describe that. Uh, agreeing with the statement religion does more harm in the world than good. 63%, according to the Ipsos poll, 63% of Australians believe Religion does more harm in the world than good. Uh, Sweden's closely behind it. I think Sweden is 61%, but uh, sadly, uh, Norway's not there. You're not there. Um, but anyway, I mean, you can work out your own uh, approach to this. There was a very interesting poll done by a major research company in Australia a few years ago that was trying to work out perceptions of Christians in Australia. This is a, a secular marketing company, um, social survey company. And they found that among the top 10 perceptions of Christians in Australia are traditional, judgmental, old-fashioned, opinionated, and hypocritical. That's not much fun. So in that context, we're trying to commend Christ. The bad news is clear. Irreligion seems to be growing. And there's much evidence to underscore a very famous uh, Australian historian's analysis of Australia as the first genuinely post-Christian society. That was his argument in a famous essay uh, from some years ago. And yet, there are surprising signs of enduring faith, faith, the belief, is my second reflection. Um, I sometimes think because I engage with skeptics so much, I think the whole world hates Christianity. And I can so get in that bubble where it's all antagonistic. I can forget, actually, there's very strong data that uh, there's enduring faith. So 68% of Australians say they believe in God or a universal spirit, according to a big uh, secular poll. And that is higher than Norway. I, I, uh, one of the things I was able to uncover is that it was a recent survey that found that more people now in Norway say there is no God 49% then say that there is a God. Mm -hmm. Okay, now that's, that's uh, very interesting. But the thing I want you to notice about this, and I throw this out for your own reflection, this survey said God or universal spirit. And what that does is it, it allows people to, who don't want to say, I believe in God, because that's a buzzword, a negative word, but they do believe in universal spirit. Now, I mean, theologically we might say whatever God is, God is universal and spirit, right? So, I mean, it's pretty much uh, similar. And I, I do wonder um, what this means for how we research what people mean when they say, I don't believe in God. There's a very interesting Pew Research Center study of Americans in 2017, uh, just published early 2018 now, um, that found, and good on the Pew Research Center for doing this, they asked people who in surveys said they didn't believe in God what they mean by not believing in God. They discovered that half of those who initially say they do not believe in God admit to believing in a universal spirit that governs all things that you can pray to. <laughs> in other words, half of the so-called statistical atheists might actually not be atheists at all. And I just throw this out to say uh, it's important not to get carried away with the, the drama of the collapse of Christianity. We, we need better 
um, methodologies for surveying this stuff. And I don't think there are many good secular research companies that know how to ask the right questions. I think Pew has been doing this long enough to realise something weird is going on when they claim to be an atheist. This actually picks up uh, the wonderful research of Olivera Petrovich, I don't know if you know that name, uh, from Oxford's uh, experimental psychology department. She's specialised on analysing belief in God in infants around the world and um, found remarkable data about um, very high belief rates in uh, a person who is responsible for the for creation of the universe, whether it's Japan or China or Britain, the same levels of infant belief or intuition in God. But the, one of the other studies that she did was um, uh, discovered that a significant portion of those who said they are atheists in surveys admit on follow-up that they use the word atheist to say, I don't like religion. That it is more a protest than a description of believing there is no God. Uh, this is all to say, I, you know, when I read the more people don't believe in God in a way than, than do believe in God, I, you know, I started to think about this research and, and implications it might have. But the other thing, uh, other sign of enduring belief in Australia is that 15% of Australians can be found in church up to once a month. And again, I don't know how that uh, compares with here, but that is a remarkable number of people. In fact, I drilled down and found in the Bureau of Statistics that that is almost as many as play sport in Australia. <laughs> almost as many Australians attend church at least monthly, 3.5 million, as play any form of organised sport or physical activity in a year. Another surprising finding uh, of uh, recent studies is that 63% of Australians believe in the possibility of miracles, but 75% believe Jesus performed miracles. <laughs> now just let that sink in. Statistics. This, this could be a, a sign of Australians not being very intelligent, <laughs> or that what happens when an Australian is asked the question about miracles, you know, 63% say, you know, yeah, possible. But when confronted with the, do you think Jesus did miracles? They just, there's something psychological that takes place. There's such a positive response to Jesus. More people believe Jesus did miracles than think miracles are possible. I think that's kind of delightful. <laughs> My point in these first two reflections is that there is a weird tension between Increasing contestability and enduring plausibility, nonetheless. And it's in that nexus that I think we find many opportunities to commend Christ. And this last statistic, by the way, uh, nicely segues to my third reflection. Jesus is admired where the church is despised. I'm sure we've experienced that here. A 2013 study uh, published by Cambridge University Press by two information scientists, neither of whom is a Christian, uh, came up with an algorithm to test the relative impact of about 1,000 historical figures from uh, uh, Aristotle through to Einstein. And according to their algorithm, Jesus was the number one most influential figure in world history. And uh, this chimes with Aussie statistics, actually. Uh, when asked, half of Australians think Jesus was the most important figure in history. That's remarkable. And 72% say he was a good influence on the world. So although 63% of Australians think that religion has done more harm than good, 72% believe Jesus had a good influence on the world. I mean, that's entirely irrational at one level, but it, I think, gives you an insight into the affection 
that Western culture still has for Jesus. We tried to navigate this in a documentary that the Centre for Public Christianity released in Australian cinemas last year, and it uh, uh, aired in prime time on our national broadcaster in Australia. Uh, we made it for the secular audience. And <laughs> it's all about the church and how the church is better and worse than we ever imagined. Uh, we, we go into the awful things, witch trials, treatment of women, uh, crusades, uh, religious wars, and so on, but also the beautiful things that Christianity has done uh, through world history. And a central scene offers the viewer uh, an analogy that, that I think um, uh, gives insight into how we have approached this dilemma, and, and, and especially this idea that people admire Jesus even if they despise despise the church. And that is the image of uh, Bach's cello suites, which can be played beautifully and very poorly, but the suites are beautiful. And uh, here is uh, a, a small clip from the movie. Hopefully this works. the religion of Jesus Christ on account of the many sins of his followers. But perhaps it's too easy, like judging a piece of music on the basis of a bad performance. trying to do is invite people to imagine that the teaching of Jesus, the person of Jesus, is a beautiful tune that can be played poorly, and indeed has been played poorly, and has been played beautifully. But we are asking people at that point to, in a way, separate their opinion of the church from their opinion of Jesus. But I just want to offer this caveat. This is risky business. Because what you can end up doing, of course, is solidifying people's resistance to ever walk in the front door of a church, ever have anything to do with the Christian community. And they can sit consoling themselves, they have a spirituality because they like Jesus. And I don't think that's very effective. So one has to walk a very careful line here that sometimes you actually trip over. And I'll give you an example uh, of the Center for Public Christianity, I think slightly tripping over. 
uh, one of our um, workers at the Centre for Public Christianity wrote an article uh, for the Guardian newspaper, uh, which basically said that um, Christians in Australia shouldn't get um, too upset about antagonism toward Christianity in Australia, and they should instead suck it up. I don't know if that's an expression that you use here. It's not quite a vulgarity uh, in Australia. If it sounds vulgar, uh, well, I'm Australian, and so you just have to forgive me for uh, you know, having convict heritage and all that. Um, but, but here's the thing. Um, the, the article made this distinction that sort of criticized the church for complaining and then said Jesus never complained about the bad treatment he got. So it played on this thing. We know people admire Jesus, despise the church, and this article played on it. But I, what I want to say is, I think it was a mistake. I think um, we didn't think carefully enough about this and actually made the mistake I'm urging you not to make, and that is to overplay the distinction between Jesus and the church. Because Jesus founded the church, he was rather fonder of, fond of it. This leads to my fourth reflection, the four temptations, I think, face public Christians, people who want to make Christ public. Withdraw, attack, slander, and focus only on issues. Let me uh, take them in turn. The first temptation, especially in contested times, is to withdraw. Now, I'm going to assume no one here wants to withdraw. You're happy to jump into the fray. But some people do make the tactical decision to withdraw. There's that very famous book, The Benedict Option, by Rod Dreher, um, who you know, who's having quite an influence. And his argument is not quite withdrawal, but his argument is that um, Christians are so annoying to secular culture that we should just be a little bit quieter at the moment, lest we annoy people too much. Let's be more like a, sort of a faithful monastic tradition that just is invitational instead of um, agitating and annoying. That's one option. I, I don't think, as I read the New Testament, it is a faithful option. But the second temptation is to attack the world. It's almost the opposite. Uh, some Christians out of insecurity are worried about the sort of fall of Christendom and their project is to reclaim Christian rights, um, hold Christian laws in Parliament, um, demand space in the public square and so on. At the moment Australia is facing this quite dramatically because we're going through the discussion of a religious freedom bill in uh, the federal parliament and some conservative Christians are being uh, very bolshy about this and they fearful of the de-Christianization of Australia are attacking and it's um, I don't think it's very helpful the third temptation of public Christians and I'm seeing this quite a bit at the moment in Australia is progressive Christians slandering conservative Christians to gain merit with the public square. They throw their conservative brothers and sisters under the bus in order to make themselves look good. We're not with them. They're the arrogant, bigoted, hateful Christians. We're the nouveau, lovely Christians. And um, I think it's really problematic. Um, and so that kind of progressive, even progressive evangelicalism <coughs> can be very quickly tempted to distance itself from more conservative Christians. Now, there, there can be a place for saying we don't quite share that view, but you don't throw your brothers and sisters under the bus. 
The fourth temptation is to discuss issues instead of Christ. Um, and I want to admit that we at the Centre of Public Christianity faced this temptation and failed it on a number of occasions. All of these temptations, I believe, grow out of insecurity. And this leads to my fifth reflection. Public Christianity must flow from genuine spiritual confidence. Uh, I'm sure the sort of the theme verse for many of us is this one from 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened in your hearts. Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. Now, uh, you probably know that in Greek, that's one sentence, actually. There's no... Uh, there's no, no it's, um, it, it says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer. So the connection between revering Christ as Lord and giving an answer is intimate. They're not two ideas. They are, uh, the thought is the more... Um, clear-minded and confident you are in Jesus Christ, the more willing you are uh, to be public. The ground of public Christianity is genuine spiritual revival of Christians. They, you know, you, you can do all of the apologetics training you like, you can do the media training, but if people's hearts are not revived to fear Christ more than the media, to fear Christ more than academia, to fear Christ more than pop culture, to fear Christ more than their friends. If that is not the situation, our public Christianity will not take appropriate risks, will not be relaxed, comfortable, it'll be anxious. So perhaps it is you know, one of the most important things we can do if, in order to see Christians promoted Christ is to seek that spiritual revival, that worship, only if public Christianity flows from a heart of worship does it have the psychological and spiritual resources to remain cheerful in the midst of what sometimes seems quite depressing, which leads to my sixth reflection. I believe that what we need, certainly in Australia, is a cheerful confidence to jump into the fray combined with a cheerful humility to lose well if we must. This seems to me the basic posture of earliest Christianity from the New Testament through to the time of Constantine. A, a, a cheerful humility that can lose well. You can whack me across the head and I'll smile sweetly back. <laughs> you can put me in prison and I'm likely to start singing hymns. That sort of... It, it, is, a, it is a weird combination of confidence and humility. In fact, of course, they go together. Um, I mean, one sort of secularist critique of early Christianity before the period of Constantine was that because they had no power, they had no confidence, they pursued their slave ethic. Right? This was Nietzsche's great critique of Christianity. Of course, they were all peasants and slaves. So, of course, they inverted the whole notion of power. Of course, they said the lowly is where the action is. But I think it's a complete misreading of ancient Christian sources. My reading of ancient Christian sources for the first three centuries is they were frighteningly confident that they were going to win. And it's out of that confidence that they were happy to lose. They could sit very loosely to their own cultural ascendancy because they knew Christ had already won. He was already Lord over all things. Of course, we find it in um, a passage like Philippians 1, where, of course, you know, Paul is in prison, probably Rome, though some think Caesarea. 
uh, and he writes to the Philippians, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. There is this delightful confidence that no matter what happens to him, the gospel goes forward. And of course, the 1 Peter 3 passage has this same sense of cheerful confidence to step up, to speak up, combined with a cheerful humility to lose well, to be slandered, to smile sweetly back. I think we've got, to, we've got to recover this. At least where I come from, we have to recover this. I want to offer three images that I find helpful. Just little images that we throw out to Christian audiences when we're trying to explain what we mean about this posture. Here they are. One, the, dis, the dif, difference between a prophetic model and a dinner party model. <laughs> the prophetic model of the Christian in public is obvious. It, uh, uh, he or she thinks she you know, is, is, a, is the prophet Isaiah and that Australia is Israel. Mm-hmm. And that I have a right moral authority to denounce the ungodliness of Australia, just as Isaiah did, right? That's the prophetic model. Uh, rarely do people do the biblical theology to work out that that's a completely invalid biblical model. But leaving that to one side, I think that uh, another happy model to, to, to play with is the dinner party model. That is, we are guests at someone else's dinner party. We don't provide the house, we didn't provide the table, we didn't provide the food. But we are thrilled to be invited. And we will open our big fat mouth whenever there is the opportunity. We'll laugh along with the jokes, we'll tell a few jokes ourselves, and we hope we get an invitation back. We'll be asked our opinion, we'll give it, we'll be howled down, but we won't think that we have the right to send everyone out of the room. Because we are dinner guests at someone else's dinner party. I think that posture... It's cheerful confidence, it's cheerful humility, is helpful for us. The other picture that um, might be helpful that we often throw out to our Christian friends is that what we're trying to do is have uh, flex two muscles at the same time, the muscle of conviction and the muscle of compassion. Uh, sorry, sorry, that's a little bit sexist, so let me change it there. <laughs> the, muscle of, the muscle of conviction, you know, is standing up for what is moral, uh, holding our doctrine of Christ and all that, right? And our doctrine, our, our demeanor of compassion is, of course, you know, befriending the sinner and 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 um, mopping up uh, the streets and caring for the poor and all that, right? And in the and in the history of the church, sometimes we've let one or other of those muscles atrophy. Sometimes it's been all conviction and no compassion. And sometimes it's the opposite. It's all compassion, no convictions. But of course, the genius of Jesus was the ability to flex both muscles at the same time. To thunder in public about the coming judgment of God. And then to invite himself to dinner with the chief sinner of the town. Conviction and compassion. What the church often splits apart, Jesus held together. How we need to recover this. I love Miroslav Volf's um, Soft Difference article. In, uh, in which he describes this, this basic posture that, I, that I'm trying to get across as soft difference. That is, the church relates to the world with a kind of gentle confidence. And my, my third picture of this gentle confidence comes from my colleague at the Centre for Public Christianity, Simon Smart. He says bumping into Christianity should feel like bumping into a high jump mat. You know those big high jump mats, right? Mm-hmm. If you've ever uh, jumped on it, It's beautifully soft. It's a delight to fall into. But if you try and move it, 
like actually get to the side and try and move this big thing, it's immovable. It is this giant teddy bear of both safety and stability. And um, I do believe that the world's experience of interacting with the church should feel beautifully soft and absolutely immovable. Connected with the seventh lesson, although I might have run out of time, so... Fine. You sure? Yep. My seventh lesson. Seventh reflection. Losses can be wins in disguise. Cultural opposition, losses of power, prestige, and so on, do not necessarily mean gospel losses. Often the reverse is true. Of course, uh, I've already reflected on Philippians 1.12. What's happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. You might have thought it was a loss. That the chief witness to the Gentiles is now in jail. But Paul says, no, no, it's fantastic. The gospel's now in jail. How fantastic is that? Or in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, I love this mature Paul saying, this is my gospel for which I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Woe is me. No, but God's word is not chained. Uh, he knew that a loss to him was not a loss to the gospel. And sometimes the reverse can be true. I'll give you just um, a couple of examples from our work at, at the Centre of Public Christianity. Uh, this is some footage from a news clip, um, uh, a national news program, because my book, A Sneaking Suspicion, which is used as textbooks in, Australia, in Australian schools, was banned by the government because <laughs> of this woman who's uh, a sex expert, um, sort of a pretty radical Marxist sexologist, uh, uh, who wrote a scathing review of my book because it um, engaged in uh, the, the bigoted othering of people who weren't uh, heterosexual. Uh, I, I didn't even mention any other form of sex. I, I simply just talked about the beauty of God's plan between a man and a woman. Um, uh, and she got it banned. She wrote a very serious report and the federal government, uh, the New South Wales government, um, uh, cancelled the book. Now that was very embarrassing for me. This is a really well-known book. It's been a big part of my ministry over the years. And um, I had to face the press on it. Now here's the thing. Um, I had really good friends take me aside before I did my first interview on it and say, John, you've always talked about losing well. Go and lose well. <laughs> and so completely against my nature, I did uh, a number of interviews um, uh, on radio and on TV, where my basic point was, I know the government has the interests of children as their first priority, and that's fantastic. And I hold out a little bit of hope that they'll review it themselves instead of depending on this report and come to a different mind and see it as a good thing. All right? So that was what I had to do on radio, on TV and so on. Here's, here's the extraordinary thing. What felt like a massive loss was turned into a really beautiful um, gain. I don't just mean that the book sold really well after being uh, banned, though so it did. Um, <laughs> I got a phone call 
after one of these interviews from the Minister for Education. <laughs> yes, hello, sir. He said, um, I just heard you on ABC Radio. Thank you for not bashing us. Mm. <laughs> I decided I would read the book. Yeah. <laughs> I read it last night. I loved it. I hope my kids read a book like this one day. <laughs> Do you want to come in to have a coffee and talk about all this? Okay. I ended up having three, four, five private coffees with this Minister for Education. Not about this issue, but about Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I tell you that, just as a, a little example, I could tell you many other examples of what felt like a real loss, and certainly an embarrassment, turned into a wonderful gospel opportunity. Now, this did happily turn out that four weeks later they reversed the ban of this book and it's now used again. But even if that hadn't happened, I'd still be telling you the story of what a joy it is to be able to bring Christ to the Minister for Education through what felt like a loss. Uh, there are many other examples that uh, I won't bother with. Let me move to my eighth reflection. Conceding often commends. Conceding often commends. Um, the opening scene of the documentary uh, is set at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, third most holy site in Islam. And I tell the story of how the Crusaders in July 15, 1099, burst uh, into uh, the platform that you can see there and slaughtered thousands of men, women and children. Many climbed the roof of the mosque to escape, but the Crusaders just showed no mercy to anyone slaughtered them. We have primary texts. We have letters home from the Crusaders uh, boasting in this. Now, they engage in exaggeration, boasting uh, that the blood, you know, rose up to the horse's legs and so on. <laughs> it's a bit crazy, a bit blood-curdling. Uh, but then they held a church service the next day to praise Jesus for such a wonderful victory and vindication. And um, what I'm saying is that um, there is a power in conceding where Christians have made mistakes. And it often leads to incredible opportunities, uh, which I'll tell you about in a sec. I, I won't bother showing this uh, scene, but I'll give you another example of what I'm talking about. This is a, uh, an article I wrote for um, our national broadcaster a few years ago now. Uh, Top 10 tips for atheists this Easter. <laughs> and it, it starts with a little bit of cheek Atheists uh, should uh, drop their easily dismissed scientific, philosophical, and historical arguments against Christianity and insist, uh, and instead, quiz believers about Old Testament violence and hell, writes John Dixon, right? So, it, my first few tips are, you know, things that atheists get wrong about Christianity, you, you could do better uh, if you really want to take us down. But um, what I do at the end of the article is, is offer two things where I think Christians are really vulnerable. There's a little bit of a risk, actually. And, and they are ask us about Old Testament violence and press us on hell and judgment and watch us squirm. <laughs> now, the, the thing about this is this article went nuts and might be the most widely read of all the secular pieces that, that I've written in my time with CPX. And I think a big part of it was the concession that Christians have some vulnerabilities. You probably can't get us on science. You probably can't get us on history. You can't get us on philosophy. 
but you might be able to get us squirming on hell and Old Testament violence. Now, I, I do say in the article, I think we have some bumbling answers to offer. There are reasons I'm not giving up the faith over this, but we're vulnerable here. And I do think it's the conceding that commends, often commends the Christian faith. Which leads to my final observation, do I have time? Yes. The public has two Christianities in mind. Uh, what do I mean? I mean, I think the average Australian, and, I, and only you can work out if this is true here, simultaneously has a negative portrait of Christianity and a positive one just sitting there in the head. And here, remember at the very outset I said that there was some interesting research by McCrindle Research Company in Australia of the top 10 perceptions of Christians. And they included hypocritical, opinionated, old-fashioned, judgmental and traditional. They are 10 to 6. They're the most popular uh, criticisms. But here is <coughs> 5 to 1. Faithful, honest, kind, loving, caring. Now, you could try and explain this statistically by saying, oh, there's a cohort that has entirely negative views of Christians. There's a slightly larger cohort that has positive. But actually, the researchers themselves said that actually what they think is going on is when people are picking descriptions of Christians in this survey, they are thinking, oh, yeah, they're old-fashioned and hypocritical when they're thinking of one vision of Christianity. And then they're reminded of their grandmother or the neighbour down the street that drops off meals for them, and they suddenly go, kind, honest, caring, loving. <laughs> and that's the same people who have negative and positive impressions of the Christian faith. Uh, for the sake of time, I won't show you this clip, but last year, uh, I had the most bizarre experience on uh, an, a, a national breakfast program, breakfast TV program, uh, around the release of the documentary. And I was on for eight minutes, and the first four minutes were bruising. They were like, you know, what about this? What about that? What about, you know, all the bad things the church has done? The thing is, I mean, my approach was to say, yeah, it's terrible. In fact, you don't know the half of it. Let me tell you, it, it got much worse than that. And, but at, at the point where this panel, all of them secularists, at the point the panel realised I wasn't one of those Christians that's just trying to defend everything, there's this remarkable point where this woman to my right, Left, says, but hang on, there's some good bits too, aren't there? <laughs> yeah. And then suddenly the whole panel lights up with, uh, didn't Christians start the first hospitals? Uh, you know, they're the ones mopping up the streets you know, for the homeless. And, uh, and I go, yeah, 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 so, yeah. yeah. And, and they insisted I spend the rest of the time talking about the wonderful things Christianity had done for the world. I could not believe it. But I came away from this experience convinced of this thing that I'm trying to get across that in Australia at least people have two Christianities in their head at the same time the negative, bully horrible, traditional, hypocritical Christian and the, the beautiful loving, the, the picture of Jesus that they have in their head that they know Christians are meant to be like and how the church behaves how public Christians behave and how they speak can activate one or other of these perceptions of the Christian. It is very easy to activate the perception of bully Christians. It is equally easy to activate the perception of loving Christians. Well, much more can and should be said, but I'll leave it there. There are just nine reflections on Public Square. <laughs>